One thing that's very helpful over here is that they've stopped denying and they've accepted the fact that cannabis is a medicine. And that was part of the 2020 UN resolution where the UN voted to adopt cannabis and deschedule it and make it a medicine. So they've accepted that in the European community. So once you've accepted that, you know, and you look at, okay, the usage, you see that it's being helped. Well, then you can develop into better models. Now, Europe has never been, at least many countries in Europe, has never been overly litigious in just about everything. And especially, they're not overly litigious about the use of drugs. So like here in Portugal, everything's decriminalized. There is no illegal drugs. Users are treated as they are. Either they're seeking therapy or they have an addiction and they need therapy. So that's generally been the approach in Europe. You're listening to To Be Blunt, the podcast for cannabis marketers, where your host Shada Taravi and her guests are trailblazing the path to marketing, educating, and professionalizing cannabis. Light one up and listen up. Here's your host, Shada Taravi. Hello, and welcome back to the To Be Blunt podcast. I'm your host, Shada Tarabi, cannabis business owner and brand marketer. And I am officially back from Germany, touring the stores and Bickle factory with a bunch of cannabis influencers, content creators, publicists, journalists, and brand ambassadors from all over the globe. And I've got to say that I am just so extremely honored that I had the opportunity to go on this trip and have these experiences. If you don't know who Stores and Bickle is, they are a German manufacturer of herb vaporizers, most recognized by their flagship product, the Volcano, which essentially is a triangle or volcano-shaped desktop device that heats the flower up to produce a vapor that you then inhale from a bag or hose. I've been familiar with their brand for a long time. For example, smoking out of a volcano was like a rite of passage at my high school during house parties, so I've truly been a fan of theirs for years. And the company is actually 20 years old and they keep innovating on products. Most recently within the last, you know, kind of six or seven years, they've launched handheld devices like the Mighty Plus and Crafty Plus. And as someone who has tried a lot of herb vaporizers on the market, these are top of the line. I mean, they are German manufactured after all. Within the last year, I've been making a conscious choice to vape flour more than combust it. It's just something I'm conscious about with how much I consume and how much I do enjoy inhaling things. So when I got the opportunity to work with them earlier this year on some collaborated content as an influencer, that was honestly one of the best feelings knowing that this brand that I've been familiar with for so long was reaching out to work with me. Fast forward to a few months ago and I got an email inviting me to visit their HQ in Germany and y'all, I just couldn't pass up the opportunity. I have been making content for almost eight years now and I originally started out as a food blogger and then I was in my accident and I transitioned to lifestyle content and then when I got into the cannabis industry, I started creating cannabis content but I still feel just like a regular gal who likes to share what she's doing on social media and still feel shocked and and grateful and humbled when brands want to work with me, especially at this caliber that is stores and Bickle. So really just 
so incredibly grateful and honored to be a part of it. We were hosted by their founder, Jorgen Bickel, and I just can't express how hospitable their whole team is, and not to mention their best-in-class products, but really their team. I mean, Jorgen himself, like he was hanging out with us the whole time, and I just don't usually see that typically from executives, especially at their level of, of operations, but it was so appreciated and just very, very special and intimate to get to be one of the people a part of it. And that's what I've been up to. So I appreciate y'all for the patience as I cross the pond and back. It was a whirlwind trip as I was only gone for five days. So between jet lag, the actual trip and catching up on content, it has been busy. But if you checked out my Instagram at the Shaded Tarabi, you got to see some more behind the scenes of the trip. And again, I just really can't express my gratitude enough for being a part of that. So hopefully, fingers crossed, more products to come. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you to the stores and Bickle team. And sidebar, if there happen to be any cannabis brands listening, I want to just put it out there into the universe that I really enjoyed the opportunity that I was able to be a part of with Stores and Bickle. I think it's a fun and cool way to kind of bring a bunch of creators together to make content in real time for a brand. And I would love to work with more cannabis brands to create content. And I have a handful of creators in my back pocket who would jump at the opportunity to collaborate again. So like I said, just want to put it out there. If you know a brand, you work for a brand, you own a brand, and you're like, I would love to work with a content creator, reach out to your girl. I would love to talk. Now, before we get back into regularly scheduled programming, I wanted to take the time to update you on the status of cannabis in Germany, as it is super relevant for this week's episode because my guest is from the European market. So this commentary and reporting that I'm about to share is pulled from thestreet.com. And it says Germany is seen as a huge potential catalyst for jumpstarting the recreational and medical cannabis industry in Europe. The country of 83 million is Western Europe's most populated and features the largest economy on the continent. So a breakthrough there could result in a domino effect that sees other countries also legalize the drug. Personal possession is already decriminalized in Germany, and the country has a medical cannabis program in operation. But Germany could become the second European country to fully legalize the drug after the tiny island state of Malta legalized earlier this year. The reason legalizing cannabis in Germany or any European country is so difficult is because of the single convention on narcotic drugs from 1961. The UN convened single convention and outlawed everywhere the non-medical use of cannabis, which it grouped in with other narcotics like opium and cocaine. Germany and 185 other countries are signed onto the treaty, which is pretty ironclad. And Germany's recreational cannabis market may be months or even years from coming online, but the country is still on the way to importing a record amount of weed. For example, Germany imported nearly 10,487 kilos of dried flour and extracts through the first six months of 2022, which was 6.1% higher than the first half of the year. And last year in 2021, Germany imported 20,589 kilos of cannabis for medical and scientific purposes, which was higher than 13,346 kilos in 2022 according to the German Federal Institute of Drugs and Medical Devices. Now, Germany gets the majority of its weed imported from Canada, with licensed producers shipping about 6,493 kilos of medical cannabis flour and extracts to Germany. About a third of Germany's imports of cannabis come from Canada. 
I want to pause right there because I think it's so fascinating, so interesting. I didn't realize that at that scale, cannabis could be imported and exported globally like that. And again, teasing out today's guest and episode because he's operating in the European market and operating on a global cannabis scale. He kind of breaks that down a little bit more. So I just want to kind of prepare you guys. My mind was blown because y'all know how much I love learning about this stuff. And there's just so much to keep learning and to keep unpacking. And I feel like we're so involved in what's going on in the United States cannabis market that sometimes we don't really pay attention to what's happening on a global scale. So I just kind of wanted to highlight that out. And I hope that opened up some perspective as we turn towards today's episode, because so much is happening over in Europe in regards to cannabis that we simply just don't know or really can't fully comprehend, especially and really personally only speaking for myself. I didn't really know a lot of this, but the conversation with today's guests and my recent trip to Germany has shed a lot of light about what's happening. And so I hope it informs you too. Getting into today's guest, I am joined today by Michael Sassano, the CEO and chairman of the board for Somai Pharmaceuticals, a European pharmaceutical and biotech company centered on manufacturing in Lisbon, Portugal, and distribution of European GMP certified cannabinoid containing pharmaceuticals throughout the European Union and globally. Somai emphasizes scientific pharmacology applications with European GMP standards to deliver deliver treatments to the endocannabinoid system effectively and with consistency across all markets. Taking with him the product development knowledge honed in the competitive American market, Somai is the largest and most advanced cannabinoid manufacturing facility across legal European markets, producing medicines, products, and registered APIs. So much to unpack. I hope you are ready. I hope you enjoyed learning about what is going on in the global cannabis market as much as I did from this intro. There's so much more as we tune into today's episode. And now I invite you to join me by lighting one up and let's welcome Michael to the show. Thanks for having me on, Shada. So my pharmaceuticals was founded here in Europe to capitalize on the pharmaceutical and biotech kind of space for cannabis in Europe and really globally, actually. And so my pharmaceuticals kind of came about through the, the idea of Aldous Huxley's Soma and the proceeding from there. Okay, nice. You said a lot of words that I'm not going to lie are, I understand what they were, like you're saying biotech and obviously pharmaceutical, but let's put it into the context of the cannabis industry. What is the scope of your business? What are some examples of operations that are under SOMI and kind of just like, what is the scale of your operations presently? Yeah. So imagine like any medicine that you go and you get a prescription for. So if you divide the cannabis world into three sectors, so you have the pharmaceutical sector, which is Epidiolex, Sativex, Marinol, and those drugs that have gone through clinical trials. Then you have the medicinal world, which are actually prescribed medicines. So those would prescribe what we call ACM, but those are herbal, herbal medicines that are safe for consumption, but go through the same kind of steps that any medicine is created under. So whether you're creating an aspirin or a vaccine, there are certain steps in the pharmaceutical world that you have to adhere to, and that's called GMP. So we adhere to the standard of pharmaceutical GMP, which is slightly different well, tremendously different than the GMP that you would make hemp under, which would be Novel Foods GMP. So we prescribe to that. We have to prove quality and stability of our products. What we don't have to do is go through the clinical trials. 
And then, of course, your third category would be recreational, which you, you would very well know in the United States. Okay, thank you for that. That is very helpful in understanding a little bit more of the scope of your business and also the different categories, because I do think in the cannabis world, obviously the words medicinal, medicine, obviously with epidiolex from a pharmaceutical perspective are words that do get brought up. But I think the industry is expanding at such a rapid pace that it's kind of hard for us to imagine the progression of some of these different tracks of cannabis. And so to kind of peel back the curtain a little bit and go back to maybe a little bit about your background, your journey, like how did you get here to founding Somai? And what is happening in Europe presently or kind of like leading up to obviously when you founded the company to now presently that is like setting the stage for this? I know a little bit about cannabis at a international level, but obviously I always love learning from my guests to kind of, you know, tell it from your perspective since you're actually living it, breathing it, operating in it daily. So kind of what is that like in terms of people having accessibility to cannabis in Europe in general and specifically, like, why are you in Portugal? (laughs) Well, I mean, besides the good weather. Yes, of course, besides the good weather. I'm very jealous. I'm hot, humid Texas. And quite a nice lifestyle. Portugal right now is, you would call it for sure, if you were counting by volume, is would be the epicenter of production for cannabis in Europe today. So it is last year, they exported over 30 tons of product to other European and global countries like Australia or Israel outside. And one of the keys behind the, the globalization, let's say being able to move cannabis from one country to another is the pharmaceutical derivation. So being able to say that you have an actual pharmaceutical API and whether that's the flower, which is, is dried under GMP standards and then can be transferred as an API to different countries that accept cannabis flower, or as what we do, we manufacture the plant, we manufacture and extract the biomass and create multiple formulations for multiple indications that people have. So as an example, you know, one thing that we're tackling that, and keep in mind, these are prescribed by doctors and these are distributed through pharmacies. One thing that we're tackling is arthritis, as an example, and proving that through clinical trials that our formulations work for arthritis as one of our many pain indications. Of course, there's many other indications that we're that our formulations address, but Portugal is the place where they allow you to import, export, distribute, and produce all these cannabinoidal products and get the registrations under the pharmaceutical rules. You're blowing my mind because it sounds like Europe is certainly more progressive when it comes to cannabis in some regards compared to the United States. Obviously, the infrastructure is also different just in terms of how Closely, these different countries are relative to each other is is similar to how our states are to each other. But obviously, state to state, you're still under the United States government versus Portugal. It's a different entity than Australia. And it seems like you can transport products. What is the, I guess, timeline for how this has unfolded? Because I've heard of some of it, like I mentioned before we were recording. I have had some conversations both on the podcast and just in general industry you know, conversations, understanding, I think, you know, Germany seems to be a big hub for cannabis advancement. Portugal, of course, I have heard when you're talking about countries like Australia, are you importing and exporting 
THC products. So under this pharmaceutical kind of category or statute, or like to me, I don't know, is, is cannabis legal in Australia? I haven't heard of that necessarily being a big talking point. So I'm trying to just unpack from your expertise, the timeline, because I don't think people really understand how advanced this infrastructure is set up in Europe to import and export cannabis. Also, is it limited licensure? Like how many people are actually able to do this? Is your business one of many or one of few who has secured these licenses? I'm just curious how that opened up and and that operational opportunity, because it's, I don't think, talked about as much as obviously what's going on in America in terms of recreational and adult use access. Well, I think you said it really great in, you know, in the beginning there when you were talking about how states are different and over here, how countries are different. So let me just give you kind of like the, a little brief tour of what that looks like. So from the Portugal standpoint, we are producers, manufacturers, we're growers, and we can bring in product from South America, Uruguay, Colombia, South Africa, Lesotho. These are all main hubs to bring in product for us to either process or distribute through Europe as flour. So let me pause really quick. They can legally grow cannabis in those countries, but they can't sell it. Like, how are they growing, I guess? Is it like all import export? Like you can grow in X country and then you can ship it to Portugal for processing. That's correct. And we're talking about THC where I'm just talking strictly about THC regulated narcotic. And so, yeah, they have their own internal markets, but clearly the European market by all stretches of the imagination is touted to be, is going to be the second largest market eventually. So, you know, everybody wants to get their products from one place over to another and Europe and Portugal, the center of that. Now who's consuming? So Germany is by far and large, the largest. This happened in 2017. They had a referendum where the government allowed doctors to prescribe at will what they deemed appropriate for people with, and the quote is severe illnesses. Now that can translate into pain or things more serious like epilepsy and multiple sclerosis, of course. Um, these are all proven indications that cannabis works for. And so that market is the number one market. Italy is a close second. You know, it's tightly controlled by the Italian army who distributes the product and has for decades but that's the second largest market. The UK, although not in Europe anymore, is a still an up and coming market, but they only have like 20,000 patients and it starts scaling down from there. Now you even have recreational markets. So little countries like Malta and Luxembourg are embarking on a recreational program. Switzerland is trying out 10 social clubs, similar to Malta social clubs. You have in Spain, although it's completely let's say gray market. They have about 500 social clubs there in the Barcelona, Catalonia region. Now we can't distribute to them because they're not medical, but they exist. And soon Germany, you know, will, will announce regulations for a, for a recreational market. So, you know, Australia, of course, is more of a recreational market. Israel has the largest, has, well, actually Europe overtook Israel this year as a whole. Israel was leading and that's mostly a flower market, but by prescription and a very robust market at that. And they're one of the, they've been around the longest, but Europe's coming quick and the Germans deciding to go recreational 
as, and this was the health minister who did it, not the politicians. So the health minister, it's like Anthony Fauci coming out and say, or Deborah Burke saying, hey, we want cannabis to be legalized. Well, that's the guy who did it in Germany. And now you have all of the main countries, France, Spain, all announcing that they're looking at changing their program and adopting either a medical program or a recreational stance or some hybrid thereof. You're blowing my mind right now. This is so exciting. And also full disclosure to my audience who doesn't necessarily know this, but I think by the time this episode comes out, I'll have already have been there. But I'm actually flying to Germany next week to go tour stores in Bickel's headquarters, I guess, manufacturing facility in South Germany. But we're flying into Switzerland and then going to go into Zurich and then go across the border. And so I, again, just being in the industry and also kind of having some of these opportunities come up, I'm aware of kind of some of the movements, but obviously not to the degree that you're aware of some of these movements. And I think it's so fascinating how much is actually happening over in Europe in terms of cannabis adoption and opportunity that is, in my opinion, a little bit probably surpassing the United States. I know you like to talk about markets and trends as well. And obviously you've been touching on what's going on in your part of the world, especially in relationship to your business, but kind of put it in like spectrum for us compared to what's going on in the United States. Do you think, you know, these countries have set up good programs, bad programs, the way that it's governed? I'm curious to understand a little bit more about Italy when you're saying it's like, is it distributed by their army? Because you're also talking about it being a pharmaceutical. And so in some countries it's distributed through the pharmacies. And it sounds like it's predominantly medical, but it's trying to be adult use and just obviously knowing candidly the shit show that is American cannabis policy. It sounds like Europe is perhaps figuring it out a little bit faster, maybe better than we are over here. And so I'm curious to understand a little bit of your insight, maybe even some musing speculation too of, you know, not that one is going to be better than the other, but in theory, you know, we have to learn from some programs know of what's going on in America in terms of like, what is the best program in America? So looking at Europe, kind of who has established the best program, and maybe it is a little bit of a piecemeal model because it sounds like Portugal is really good for processing and manufacturing, but Germany is right now the leader for consumption. Is that just by their legislation or their regulation? Or is it just the amount of people in these countries and their, you know, propensity for adopting cannabis? Like, I'm just trying to understand a little bit more too of why this growth is happening. And it seems controlled growth versus chaos over here in the U.S., if that's fair to say. Yeah, I mean, look, the the United States will for, I think, indefinitely be the law, the heavyweight champion of cannabis. You know, they're already topping near 30 billion in sales. So, you know, there's no doubt there's a lot of problems with the regulation in the United States. There's a lot of confusion, especially from the federal level. One thing that's very helpful over here is that they've stopped denying and they've accepted the fact that cannabis is a medicine. And that was part of the 2020 UN resolution where the UN voted to adopt cannabis and deschedule it and make it a medicine. So they've accepted that in the European community. So once you've accepted that, you know, and you look at, okay, the usage, you see that it's being helped. Well, then you can develop into better models. Now, Europe has never been, at least many countries in Europe, has never been overly litigious in just about everything. And especially, they're not overly litigious about the use of drugs. 
So like here in Portugal, everything's decriminalized. There is no illegal drugs. Users are treated as they are. Either they're seeking therapy or they have an addiction and they need therapy. So that's generally been the approach in Europe that, you know, people who have either a drug addiction or the need are, are seeking one of two roads and they treat it as such. Now, if you were trying to be a dealer of illegal drugs, that's a whole nother thing. They'll put you under the jail. But, you know, the point is once you've adopted and you've said, okay, we accept this as a medicine, which is something the U.S. has been still denying, which is quite you know strange. Now you have the chance to look at the social impacts, you know, of the drugs and also the safeties of the drug. So if cannabis is grown with pesticides, well, you're going to develop something in your lungs at some point in time. And most people will cut the corners in the illegal market. Well, these are things that the health ministers are addressing. What is better for the safety of our consumers? Is it better to have a regulated product that we can control? And by the way, we can tax. Is that the better solution? And the health minister says yes, because it's better to accept cannabis on an adult scale level than the alternative. And they're looking at those exact words and saying to themselves, well, let's change our policies. Another thing that they're very interested in is they understand the social aspect. So they see the coffee shops in the Netherlands. They see the clubs in Barcelona. They've accepted that, hey, maybe, you know, Switzerland has accepted that, hey, we're going to do, you know, these clubs. So, you know, at the end of the day, they said they understand there is not just a social aspect to it, but a medicinal aspect. And they want to address all of those concerns. So, you know, that's the development, how you see, and that's the mindset that they're taking in it. Although they move very slow in politics here, when they see the momentum moving, they move pretty quick because nobody wants to be the only country that hasn't accepted it. And if I can just drive over to Germany and pick up some cannabis for myself, well, you know, all the surrounding countries are disadvantaged and they're going to have an issue because their people will drive 30 minutes, one hour, two hours, whatever it takes to get across the border in order to do it. And so how are you going to address that problem when everybody's producing legally? That makes me jump to think through, because obviously it's a problem in America in terms of, and, and I would hope that that would have been some impetus for more states legalizing, right? Like Colorado legalized. So here in Texas, it's like, okay, well, if Colorado legalized, if now Arizona legalized, if New Mexico legalized, wouldn't you want to legalize? Because aren't people just going to go across the border? But it's still illegal in my state. So just on that note, it sounds like it's so decriminalized really is kind of the statute that it's not that it's illegal. It's just, yeah, go get it in Germany and come bring it back to your country. And then that country's like, well, if it's decriminalized, we should just legalize it, right? Is that kind of the understanding? Or is it still a little bit like the United States where you could go to another country, but you are still doing illegal business if you're bringing it back into your country? Or is it more gray in Europe compared to the United States? Well, it's not great, but there's no borders. The EU has no borders. So what is, you know, it's not like. Not really enforcing it. <laughs> look, there's no police on the roads to give you a speeding ticket. Who's going to pull you over and say, hey, by the way, were you shopping in Germany for cannabis? We want to check. But no, I mean, you know, to be perfectly clear, we're not there yet. That's the mindset that's going through. And, you know, they're going to have to address that issue as time goes on. If Germany goes recreational, which is really the leader, it's kind of like New York or Texas or California making a big move. 
then everybody's going to follow them to some extent. You know, they don't really have the Democrat Republican thing over here, although, you know, each country does. They have the, hey, you know, we're a sovereign country, but we're all part of the EU thing. And let's all try to have the equal rules, you know, so that we can address each other's problems equally. So if the leader says, look, this is how I'm addressing the product, the issue that I see at hand, well, you can pretty much be sure all the bigger countries will come in line like France. Portugal's for sure going to, has been addressing it. This is 15 years now. They've brought up the referendum for legalization. And if Germany does, you can be sure Portugal's going to jump and a few others are going to really move quickly because there's no reason for them to be disadvantaged if the rules are already set. No, that makes total sense and and obviously is different structure compared to our borders and the policing we have. I mean, even with New Mexico legalizing, there was a lot of observations of a lot of Texas license plates being in New Mexico when they legalized and a lot of obvious, you know, be forewarned, you're driving back into a state that does not have cannabis friendly laws. So do it your own discretion and hope that you don't get pulled over. But obviously the cops are paying attention to kind of what's going on just because of the heightened opportunity of the situation. So I appreciate you addressing that. The next thing I wanted to kind of like circle back around with just to, or sure, you wanted to add something? By the way, up in Dallas, they're all going to Oklahoma. It's true. Yes. Be sure of it. There's like, hey, they're not all going to Winstar Casino. You know? Absolutely not. No, it's just the timing. I mean, now that it's been legal for a couple months, you see it kind of normalizing out a little bit. But the moment that it legalized, like I think it was April 1st, that like first weekend week, it was very heightened of obviously a lot of Texans are going to go peek over the, you know, peek over the fence and see what's going on and try to make home with some product. But yes, any border in the United States that has a bordering legal state, you definitely absolutely see that. So no, I wanted to circle back around. You were talking about your company obviously comes from a pharmaceutical side. That's the products that you're manufacturing. You're also then introducing this idea of certain countries being decriminalized. You're talking about also some countries referring to cannabis as medicine, hence the support for the pharmaceutical side of the industry. And then also talking about certain countries having more social aspects, comparing it to Amsterdam, the Netherlands, you know, the social clubs in Barcelona. To me, and maybe this is like a hot take, and I'm really just curious about your opinion because you are our guest and you do come from, you know, this environment, obviously, with your business being on the pharmaceutical side. I struggle sometimes with us as an industry referring to cannabis as recreation versus medicinal, right? Because medicinal does open up more, I guess, oversight from a medicinal perspective, from a pharmaceutical perspective. I think using epidiolics as an example, some of the things that I've heard as a hemp business operator, if the government deems CBD epidiolics as a pharmaceutical drug, then we won't have access to CBD as a cannabinoid because that would be a pharmaceutical. And obviously that has to go through pharmaceuticals versus the regulated adult use market or whatever. And so I think there's a little bit of a struggle sometimes. We obviously want cannabis to be more adopted, so we call it medicine. But then at the same time, we just want it to be I think decriminalized is probably more than anything versus having this regulatory oversight over things. And so I'm just curious kind of how you observe that getting addressed in Europe, considering there's these social clubs, but there's also this very clear, obviously the health, you know, 
ministers are the ones leading a lot of these conversations. How does that stack up when cannabis is potentially being classified as a pharmaceutical drug as medicine, but then also recreation and you have it in social clubs? Does that make sense? Does my question make sense? Yeah, of course. Okay. Uh, you can be sure big pharmas in the back of the, you know, in the back of the curtain, pulling the strings, you know, and causing confusion for us cannabis, little cannabis producers, you know, even at the whole entire industry of 30 billion, that's like a quarter for Pfizer. There's a place for everybody as far as I'm concerned, you know, and there's a place for them. They put in the effort to get these long trials. Doctors feel comfortable prescribing them. The results could be positive or negative. You know, you know, I don't want to necessarily, you know, say anything bad about epidiolics. I'm sure it serves its purpose for some people, you know, but there's, there's doctors and that's all they'll be able to prescribe. You know, Pfizer bought, had a $6.7 billion merger last year with a San Diego based cannabinoidal company in clinical trials. And that looked to me like they were adding to their oncology suite. So, you know, they have all of their cancer treatments and they decided they want to add this looked promising to them to add to that. Of course, I don't know what's in Pfizer's brain. Teva Pharmaceuticals got into the distribution of cannabis products. You know, they're looking at it with a curiosity and how it suits them. On the other side, you have doctors and a lot of them that should and do want to prescribe medicines and they're limited into what they can prescribe. So maybe they can only prescribe an opioid at this current point for the pain. But if there was studies or they had an alternative with cannabis, they could most likely, and this is something we're working on also with another group, is weaning them off the opioids with heavier doses of cannabinoids and then bringing those down over time, you know, bringing the usage down. So if these doctors had alternatives, they would, of course, prescribe it. And then, of course, look, the recreational and the distribution, that train has left the building. I mean, no matter what, you can't turn the clock back. And, you know, whether those rules come out to be that states get to choose and they can't come up with the general federal regulation, which is the general, you know, sentiment right now, because really they agree on most things in the U.S. You know, there should be some decriminalization. There should be some safe banking. We shouldn't be endangering our employees without safe banking and, and you know, hampering our industry. But then there's things that, you know, that are throwing a loop into it, certain social programs which, you know, we don't know what exactly they are, but for some reason that seems to be the hang up of why they can't pass anything, you know, and whatever right or wrong, you know, we can take it step by step, but the government wants to do it all inclusive. Well, if they do things all inclusive, you can pretty much bet that if they decided to make this all pharmaceutical in the United States, first of all, nobody would comply with the regulations and the air filtration systems and all the things that go into making a pharmaceutical facility. We would comply because that's what we had to do from the beginning. But I can tell you from the facilities that I made in the United States, not one single one of them can comply. And there would be nothing I can do except for tear it down and redo it. Now, who wants to destroy a $30 billion industry? So I'd have less worry that the FDA is going to come in and say, okay, CBD, epidiolex, you're out. Because some doctors need epidiolics, they need access to that drug, and they should get access to it. And some people can walk to the store and pick it up for themselves and treat the ailment that they're looking for. Now, you bring up a fair point to highlight, I want to reiterate, right, which is through 
medicine, doctors have access to certain drugs that they can prescribe. And obviously, the industry being regulated, but very unregulated, at least in the hemp side, it does open its, you know, business up to bad actors. And so there is a quality assurance issue that the consumer can make a discretion of like, okay, I want to use this product or I want to try that product. But from a medical perspective, having a pharmaceutical grade medicine that these doctors can prescribe actually empowers cannabis, I think, to go into more opportunities for the patient, the person who's looking for cannabis as an opportunity to treat something or aid in the effects of something than if we just isolate it to the adult use market and don't address the medicinal market. I just unfortunately have heard and I guess have seen and, and maybe been, you know, fear-mongered into thinking, obviously, pharma and even big tobacco and all these big industries getting involved in cannabis is bad for us. And I think it's just figuring out how everybody kind of, you know, exists together and and plays well with each other and kind of like where these products go and fit in. But you brought up studies, and I think that is a big component of the value of bringing cannabis, obviously, into the medicinal conversation, the pharmaceutical world, just big medicine in general, is the proof, is the research, which we are lacking here in the United States. And so I'm curious how your company, you mentioned, you know, doing some of these studies. How do you, I guess, approach it? How do you handle that over there? Is it through like a particular entity? Is it through a particular country who's operating the study? Is it through a particular hospital? And what are some of those, I guess, like observations or findings that you are discovering in terms of cannabis actually being applicable from a medicinal perspective? Yeah. So, I mean, you know, like large companies like GW Pharma, and they're not the friend of the CBD industry, but I don't think anybody's going to be able to change it. They spend hundreds of millions of dollars, hundreds of millions of dollars just to come up with, you know, prescription and be able to say, take this two times a day and you're going to be cured, or at least your ailment will be minimized, I should say. You know, the same exact thing we do on a smaller scale. Luckily, as smaller companies, the EU is, is, has a lot of programs to help the start, the, the pharmaceutical industry companies. They want to bring back the industry and especially Portugal wants to bring back the industry. When they joined the EU, a lot of the pharmaceutical companies left. So one thing that we had an advantage of, like we won the PT 2020, you know, and they gave us millions of, of, of euros in order to, to make our facility and create innovative products. And they also have R&D grants where 70% of the money that we invest into R&D for indications like arthritis, as I said, or chronic pain, which is something we're tackling, but proving out chronic pain, proving out arthritis in a clinical setting with specific formulations, they'll give us 70% back on the dollars that we invest. So they're very supportive of our industry because they believe in more herbal remedies, whereas the US FDA more thinks of synthetics. They want single molecule, you know, purified elements. They want CBD made from biocatalysis. They don't want CBD made from a hemp plant and then, you know, isolated, you know, in, in somebody's garage, you know, so to speak. You know, they want a biocatalysis machine that's going to, you know, bombard these with chemicals and create a synthetic molecule, right? And so, you know, the herbal medicine side, which is the side we rest on, is very well accepted in most countries over here. And especially larger markets like India, you know, Ayurvedic therapies. So 
when we come up with a distillate and there's 80%, you know, THC or TAC with CBD and the other 20% is, you know, a variety of terpenes and other cannabinoids. Well, they love that. They say, this is great. This is a medicine. And, and they treat it as such. They don't want the purified elements and single elements. They want full spectrum and they want those medicines derived from full spectrum cannabis extract. So, you know, it, it's a different world and it would be a hybrid of what's going on in the United States. quick break to say thank you to Restart CBD for sponsoring this podcast. Restart CBD is a brand my sisters and I founded in our hometown in Austin, Texas. We operate a retail location as well as an e-commerce store, and you can browse our wide range of CBD products at restartcbd.com. Again, thank you to Restart for allowing me the time and resources to put on To Be Blunt. I hope you'll check them out for your CBD needs. Let's go back to the episode. In terms of innovation, in terms of the products that your company is producing and also just seeing in the European market, walk us through what that looks like. Is innovation in form factor? Is it in technology? Is it in the formulation and the ratios of some of these cannabinoids through certain studies that are able to be done that can then validate a particular formulation? Because you know, on, on our side, and obviously, you know, this is from coming from, you know, America and in this side of the industry, we're a little bit like pulling things out of the air. Like you look at the example of why hemp has to be less than 0.3% Delta 9 THC. Like, why is that the number, right? That is that everybody's like falling, falling over, having to like follow through. I just was interviewing somebody we were talking about doses, you know, the industry standard is 10 milligrams a dose, and then you got a microdose, but she was releasing a product that was one milligram THC to another ratio of other cannabinoids. So when you're talking about innovation, what does innovation mean to you? What does innovation mean to your business, to your market? And like, just what are, what is accessible for you to kind of navigate through? I'm also curious on the cultivation side, you know, obviously certain strains, genetics work better in different parts of geography. And so I'm trying to understand, do you have a plethora of genetics that you're operating from? Is it a little bit more like, no, you know, we're working with a couple. And, and to your point of, you know, maybe India as an example, they like the, you know, the rawness of the plant of like, however it's kind of grown. Like, yeah, that sounds good. We get this percentage THC and everything else that comes, you know, naturally in the plant is good. Or are you really starting to fine tune a certain certain strains, certain phenotypes, certain genetics that produce perhaps like obviously in America, we're dealing with not just CBD, but CBG, CBN, THCV. Do you see those cannabinoids also coming over into products that you are manufacturing and offering and seeing in the market? So big question, but really want to understand what you guys are producing and what is accessible and what does innovation mean to your business and, and to really, you know, European cannabis consumption? Definitely. And look, when you come from the U.S. market, what we're producing over here would be, in essence, a step back to the U.S. products. However, from the cannabis and the pharmaceutical EU point of view, these things are nothing less than groundbreaking. So let's start with some of the basics. So you have your flour that's still, you know, predominantly the largest market, but it's also a registered pharmaceutical API. Then you have your next product, which would be an extract, which would be more like your RSO, you know, a very basic RSO 
to start. And that's very well accepted in the market. It's actually called dronabinol because it's purified THC. And then you go to a drops. So, you know, little sensors drops. And that's the most popular form right now, you know, and there's multiple mixtures from 10 milligrams per dose of THC and 10 mg's per dose of CBD to a high CBD to a low CBD. And then you have our products, you know, which come in different forms. Like we have sprays, which nobody has, transdermals, sublingual tabs, and soft gel caps. So innovation lies in the delivery device, but also innovation lies in the fast absorption or making more bioavailability. Something that's standard to us in the United States is completely avant-garde over here. Currently, the current extracts are MCT oil-based products in the market. They're neither sheer homogenized, nor do they have excipient mixes that increase the bioavailability. So our products are that 3.0, let's say, you know, in the market where we will be producing these products with the faster absorption excipients. And then you have other innovations like taste. When you taste RSO, you're not thinking, wow, how great that is. Tastes so wonderful. And over here, if you taste all of the products, that's exactly what you're tasting. And people, you know, as much as one person told me is like, Europeans like to taste their medicine. I go, yeah, but that's really bad. You can taste it, but in a much more subdued fashion, you know, and you're not adding fake tasters, flavonoids. You're actually adding terpenes, which are good for you and actually could have other effects. Even though we can't claim the, the effects of terpenes, the flavor will be enhanced by terpenes, which are naturally occurring anyways in just about every plant. And so when you think of innovation, you could think along those three lines, and then you can think along the lines of going the extra distance, which is what we're doing, which is proving these out in clinical terms so people know exactly what can be used. Because still, there's only a few indications that are accepted here. So increasing that is our gift back to the European community because we think of the few that we've chosen, and we don't have money to do every one of them, the few that we've chosen are significant and have a large enough appeal to a market over here because most of the people that are using cannabis here are 50 plus. Juxtapose that to the United States is pretty much 35 or even below. You know, so we have a different age group that's using it and they're more used to these kind of delivery devices and they prefer something that works and they don't have to wait one hour for it to onset. So there's no like gummy market, no confections, no chocolates being no produced. Plates, no, none of that fun stuff. Oh man, no, that's so crazy. I guess it makes me think too a little bit, especially you adding the demographics of who these adopters are in Europe. What is the, I guess relationship or process. This is, you know, predominantly I like to talk about marketing. So from a marketing perspective, I understand obviously being able to do studies is a qualification, not only to the consumer to say like, hey, if you have this ailment, this study validates why you could try cannabis, ask your doctor, but also to educate these medical professionals who are choosing to incorporate it into their practices. How do you market your product? So I want to understand how you build relationships to I guess, different aspects of your supply chain. So on one end, like how do you make the relationships to the cultivators to supply you the flower? Because you're not growing anything in Portugal. Is it even legal to grow in Portugal? 
Absolutely. The most amount of growers in Europe are here with 19 currently certified growers. Oh, wow. Okay. So they are growing in Portugal. So you have supply locally. So it's not like you've got to like look for other countries to be supplying the growth. But then when you are making these products, because it's coming through the pharmaceutical arm, do you automatically have, I guess, doctors and pharmacies that are clients or you have relationships with or that agree to write prescriptions? Because the American model is a little bit when you're dealing with medical marijuana, as you know, I got to get doctors on board. The doctors got to want to prescribe these things. Obviously, it's a little bit more tumultuous in certain states like here in Texas. It's getting better. We have a baby medical marijuana program, but a lot of the early doctors were cautious they were going to lose their license by going and trying to dabble in medical marijuana. And so I can imagine in Europe, you don't have that sentiment, perhaps. Maybe you do where the doctors are a little more open-minded to want to incorporate cannabis into their offerings for their patients. But I'm just curious how, like, okay, we're here. I'm in business. I'm making these products. Now, how do I get those products in the hands of consumers or patients? Probably the best word to use, given it's through the pharmaceutical companies. I mean, pharmacies. Like, how do you build a relationship from the pharmaceutical companies to the pharmacy, to the doctor, to the patient? So it's a little bit tricky. We can't advertise. We have to follow pharmaceutical rules for the narcotics. And so you have to build it by actual personal contact, making, let's say, conferences or specialized dinners, you know, going door to door, you know, explaining them your products. You know, that's your general way. But then on another side, if you have a GMP certification, there's 35 licensed producers. But people with a GMP license, you're talking maybe 12, 13 people with a GMP license. So one, you know, it's to be GMP certified. The next is to have, have these advanced studies that you can show. And then people will seek you out because at that point, you've done something that other people have not conceived of or done. So, you know, the road is a lot harder for us. We can't put up a store and then just advertise that store and draw people in in order to explain them our product we have to go door to door and explain it ourselves yeah that's definitely not dissimilar to obviously cannabis in the united states but i can imagine just the it's again it sounds like things are more advanced in europe and also to your point a little couple steps back in terms of you know accessibility and product development and things like that and certainly the demographic i'm sure a younger demographic might be a little bit more, I don't know, I'm just making, I guess, assumptions, but perceptive to cannabis, and especially given the culture of cannabis in America, for sure, the culture of cannabis in the Netherlands. But even on that note, obviously, too, the Netherlands is very limited, and they're even very peculiar in their structure, because it's not even fully legal in the Netherlands, right? It's just very decriminalized, and they look the other way, basically, for people to operate. So it's for sure not legal to grow in the Netherlands. They still do all those coffee shops. They they get their product under a streetlight and from little house growers or from Morocco where they have like the cheapest, best hash. And the 10 licensed recreational grows to make a legal system have not even started because nobody, the coffee shops don't want to pay more for a lesser genetic. The home growers are doing a better job and the Moroccans are doing a better job. So they pretty much stifle a legal program to bring it into the light. Do you think they'll ever, I mean, maybe time, obviously, it, it's just, I think even dealing with just cannabis in the United States, it's a little bit, you know, people don't love that it's going so mainstream, but it's going mainstream. So you can't ignore that big pharma or big tobacco or big industry wants to get in because 
you can't prevent something from growing. So I'm curious if the progression of Europe is going to eventually force countries like the Netherlands to subscribe to a little bit more of a regulated system or if they'll be allowed to remain isolated in their operation just because it's kind of, oh, that's legacy. Like that's how it's always been done. Yeah, tough question. I mean, I'm hopeful that they will have that legal growth. It'll be a hard two-step transition. But, you know, eventually, look, at the end of the day, you know, Europe wants the tax dollars and they don't want to put people in jail for it, but they're going to force their will on this. And they, of course, want, you know, protection for the consumers. You can hear in every debate, it's about protecting the consumers and also keeping it away from children. So, you know, how do you do that in an illegal market? There is no uh, possibility to control. The only way you could do that is under a legal market. And here it's 18 plus, not 21 plus. So, you know, it's quite a reasonable age and it's quite a reasonable position to say, hey, let's get on board and start doing this the right way, you know, but, you know, you never know. It's going to be a hard transition in the beginning for them. And they haven't even been able to get off the ground. So let's see what happens. Yeah, it's a very interesting environment that they have found themselves in, in some regards, obviously pioneering cannabis, not just in Europe, but from a marketplace perspective for all of us who I have an uncle, he lives outside of Amsterdam. So I've gotten to go enjoy cannabis there a couple of times now in my lifetime. And every time I go, I'm, I'm shocked at how accessible it is, but also how rudimentary it is. Again, they are very limited in the products, you know, we sell flour this way and that way. And we got one, you know, hash brownie you can have and that's it. And if you don't want it, sorry about it. I couldn't tell you how much is in it and how much dose, you know, per bite it is. So just like go forward, go have fun. So obviously from a, you know, safety perspective, you do want some insight and oversight into the quality, at least from a dosing perspective of what people are consuming from a safety perspective. So yeah, I'll be curious to see how that country in particular continues to progress. But I want to circle back around a little bit to licensing. So again, in America, it's limited licensure in certain capacities. And in other states, it's like a free-for-all. I'm just curious what the opportunities are in Europe because everything is kind of so open. Is it a little bit like, hey, if you have the capital and you have the idea, you can go operate. You're also mentioning, you know, like 35 licenses. There is some sort of limited availability. Is it based on funds or is it based on accessibility to licensing and what are the licenses available? Is it you can grow and you can manufacture and you can, you know, turn it into products and process or is it a little bit more blanket? Like, yep, you can be a cannabis operator and whatever you decide to do with your license, you can do it. Is it limited? Is it accessible? Is it very expensive? I think to get a medical marijuana license in Texas, the last quote was $400,000 that you had to pay every two years. And that's just for your license, obviously not including operating fees and other things. So I'm just curious to get a little bit of a grasp on what the opportunity to actually secure a license in Europe looks like presently. Right. Well, I mean, licenses aren't bought or traded over here. Well, they are. They could be traded. That's not true. But like, for instance, the Netherlands, 10 licenses were issued and it was done in a lottery. And most of those people did not have experience. And some of them partnered with like companies like Cookies with one group and a few other bigger ones. Denmark has kind of a, a medical program that's been failing, but there's 12 licensed groups there now. And there was more that had what you would call a pre-license, but, you know, clearly the market hasn't developed for them. 
So, you know, there's no reason to keep building infrastructure there. Germany offered out three licenses. Those all went to big producers. So that's a special place. The Jersey Island off of the UK there, they issued, I believe, four licenses. Maybe they'll issue more, maybe not. Portugal has more of an open licensing. So it's more like in Oregon, where there were 19 licensed facilities currently with over 100 pre-applications. Spain has, I think, two or three growers, but they don't allow processing. And just to back up, Portugal allows manufacturing and processing. The Netherlands is pure grow. Denmark is grow and processing, similar to Germany, grow and processing. Then you have Greece, which is just an export market because they have 500 patients in the whole country. There's only one facility open now, quite a large one, Ticknoalum. And then they have, I believe, 100 plus pre-licenses. But the market wasn't there, so nobody invested into that market. Malta's quite small. There's a few license sets there. And I think that's, that's about it on Europe proper. So there will be more. There are already talks about France allowing growing. We'll see how that turns out. And, you know, maybe Spain has said by the end of the year that they will have regulations. So we're hopeful there. You mentioned the Netherlands was a lottery. Are most of these other countries lotteries? Are they awarded to people who perhaps already have infrastructure? Do you have any insight if they are previous, you know, pharmaceutical companies that are interested in getting into cannabis? I'm trying to also get a pulse for like realistically, if I'm maybe not a German citizen because Germany seems pretty closed at this point for license opportunities, but, you know, in France where they don't have it yet and I really love cannabis and I have a really great idea for a brand or I love cultivating, like what is the chance of someone going and getting one of those licenses? If it's a lottery, that makes sense. If it's not a lottery, what are the qualifications, I guess, that they're expecting operators to have? We don't know yet for France, but keep in mind, this is a global market. The facilities over here are all huge. And the reason why is because they're basing it on a global demand. Our product can go from Portugal to Germany, Portugal to the Netherlands, Portugal to Austria, Portugal to Australia, Portugal to Israel. You know, our product can travel everywhere. Well, that accepts cannabis as a medicine. So it's a global standard, standardization, which allows it to cross the borders because it's regulated by the health department that regulates pharmaceutical API. So whatever you were making, whether, like I said earlier, aspirins or opioids, those would be all regulated under the same manner. So there wouldn't be any specific advantage to being in one country, except for the Netherlands, because the Netherlands has a very unique rule, which is strange to Europe, because it's supposed to be open borders and what goes for one country goes for all. And they said their product they were growing is only to service and transition from the illegal growing market to a legal growing market. So that was the only one where they closed that border. So if you were so inclined to live in France because you love the Bordeaux area and you wanted to put your grow there, you know, then they will have rules that will indicate either if they have a lot or if they allow a little bit and what kind of, you know, what kind of people they want. Most everybody in this space are either entrepreneurs, came from the Canadian industry, or came from the U.S. MSO industry. Although the U.S. MSOs didn't come here to build, they came here to buy, like Curl, you know, they just bought. And Cresco's buy of Columbia Care gave them a foray into the European market. So 
And the Canadians who said, all right, look, I'm geographically screwed, basically, you know, look, I'm going to Europe because that's the next frontier and it's open borders as opposed to, you know, sitting up here and addressing a declining market share. Yeah, I didn't quite understand or fully fathom the open border nature and also the possibility when you see it as a pharmaceutical, the import and export. Again, I knew kind of fragments of that, but obviously this conversation has been super enlightening to kind of help paint that picture more fluidly. So I really appreciate your transparency on this topic because I do think it is so we're enthralled in trying to navigate American cannabis, let alone trying to understand what is happening at a global scale. But you just, you know, hit the nail on the head with these MSOs and these big brands and operators currently in Canada and the United States are realizing the opportunity in Europe with the potential of being able to import, export things a little bit more freely. And I do think that that is, you know, an aspect of where the direction is going for the industry. I would love to believe that there's still going to be craft consumption and craft brands and obviously the adult use recreational side of things, but being able to introduce cannabis into more of the medicinal playing field, it requires this kind of setup. So it was just very fascinating. I just didn't really fully fathom all of that. So that was very, very helpful to kind of put some parameters up because it just is, again, how do you start to like dissect it and figure out how to make sense of everything that's going on? Yeah, and definitely, look, there's always going to be craft growers pushing the limits with the unique genetics. I don't think this is going to be a changer. It's just in order to navigate the European market where you're trying to navigate a global scale level, you know, you have to kind of think on a different term. You're not trying to address that state's need. And it's already been proven that large grows cannot work. They do not work in the United States. And even to the Canadians have proven that large scale grows do not work for their market. But when you extrapolate that to a global market, there is really very little choice because if your product can only make it to one country every time, you're going to do well and that country is going to benefit. But, you know, to get that genetic over to multiple countries takes some, takes a completely different monetary level and skill level. And there are plenty of, of smaller craft growers and they're going to do really well. And they try to work with us. And I just say, look, you know, for extract, I wish I could, but, you know, I'm not going to be able to, if I took all of your crop every single time, I would only be able to address a small fraction of a global market. So, you know, look, get that highest price that you can and go to, you know, get that on the top shelf and be proud of your product because that's where you need to be. You don't want to turn a beautiful flower into an oil as much as I would love to be able to say, I have craft grow, you know, grown extracts. It's just never going to address the needs. And the cost for us to certify these is astronomical, the cost and the time, because from the day you open, you're not selling the next day. You're one and a half years from your first sale because you have to go through stability studies, which means what's the actual shelf life? In the United States, we just slap a shelf life on and say, it's got to be six months. But how do you know? You know, we have to actually prove the shelf life. So at minimum, we have to show a six month stability study. On top of that, you know, our regulatory framework of the people we need to work inside, they're all PhDs and pharmacists. So, you know, you have all PhDs working for you and pharmacists who are filling out paperwork all day, you know, as opposed to making the product. And that paperwork validates the quality aspect. And that has to be precise. And you need computing systems that aren't seed to sale. You need 
Microsoft ERP, you know, that Pfizer has, you know, and then you need an EBR, an electronic batch record, you know, then you need a limbs to attach your laboratory to your EBR and your, and your ERP. So it's like, you know. It is a different ball game that is unfolding. It sounds like in your world and at that global level that again, I just don't think a lot of the day-to-day cannabis operators are really fathoming or prepared for kind of dealing with. And it sounds like some bigger brands like Cresco being one of them are obviously aware of that, privy to that, and are making investments into that global market versus I think a lot of us here in the United States are just like me. I'm like, I just want Texas to legalize. I just want to be able to like play in my little, you know, four quarters of my state. I'd be so happy if they would just let us have access to this full plant. And so I think that, you know, just goes to show there's a lot of ways to be a part of the industry, depending on your passion, your uh, obviously financials, and just what, you know, opportunity is available to you at any given moment, depending on where you happen to live or want to operate business. Yeah. I mean, look, Texas and, and New York are weird ones that we've taken so long. I mean, Florida, Florida should have paved the way at least that said, look, this is what a big state can do. I know that they're stuck with all medical only. Oh, I mean, you know, yeah, medical and drag, right? You know, is in terms of, but yeah, I mean, you know, you, you would have thought though that like, at least you'd do the Texas two-step, right? You know, one step to medical and then, hey, by the way, seems like this is okay. We've got recreational. I mean, come on. We're holding our I, breath. I, well, Austin's supposedly is supposed to be driving that charge, not Dallas stifling it. No, Austin is out of all the state, I mean, out of all the cities in Texas, even just like from a hemp, you know, adoption perspective. Austin is the most advanced. I see the the most brands coming out of our state here. I see the most innovation coming out of our state here. But yes, unfortunately, Texas is still trying to open up their medical program and their medical program is so limited. They've only got three licenses operating. Two licenses are actually I shouldn't say operating. There's three license holders in possession. Two are operating. The third license holder, I think, is just holding on. I hear they're about to sell because they obviously are losing money by just sitting on a license in some regards. And we don't know if they're going to open up more licenses, what that's going to look like in the state. But my projection is they've got to get medical to a better position. And right now, medical is so confined. So you might know this about Texas. You might not. The two license holders who are operating are South Austin. And let's say you are in Dallas or, you know, in my opinion, worst case in the Panhandle, which is much farther from Austin, that medicine can't leave their facility and go to your hands over 24 hour period. And so obviously there's like eight or seven hours where people are sleeping. So in reality, you only have, you know, 12, 14 hours to get the product actually from your facility to the patient's hand before that product has to come back to the facility in South Austin. So with them both being in South Austin, the state's very big. So that product really only has, you know, 24-hour time period before it expires and has to come back to the facility. One of the license holders is addressing it because they set up essentially like an infrastructure in Houston. So that gives them another outpost to be able to do their distribution. But they're just, they're handcuffed right now. So that program is not moving very fast that they're hoping, obviously, to get better permissions this next year's legislative session. And I think they're going to ask for this and get this. And so it's like, to me, you're not even going to see medical until this gets, you know, a little bit broader adopted. And so that's a little bit of, you know, the game that we're here navigating and trying to play, not to mention 
the an advancement in the involvement of you know, chemically derived cannabinoids, and you're talking about it from a pharmaceutical perspective, obviously, yes, people want to isolate these cannabinoids out. They want to be able to reproduce them at scale. They want to be able to reproduce them with some sort of quality assurance and consistency that's being introduced to cannabis. But then the word synthetic is getting thrown around. People don't like synthetics. They don't want synthetics in their body. And it's like, well, you realize that's what pharmaceuticals are. Those are synthetic made compounds. Okay, well, in cannabis, now you have hemp opening up this whole you know, can of worms where we're selling CBN, CBG, THCV. Now you've got psychotropics, Delta 8, HHC, hemp-derived Delta 9. Now I have hemp-derived Delta 9. Why do I even need legalization? In Texas, medical is capped at 0.1%. I'm capped at 0.03%. My medical in Texas can't make flower sales. So to me, they can't even sell products that I also can't sell. So we're both really selling gummies. And we're selling the same dose because I can make a heavy enough gummy that's 10 milligrams. Well, that's what my medical is selling in the state. So to me, it's like we're selling the same product, but you have the oversight of medical, but you also have the support of the state. And then yet we're all fighting for legalization and access to licensing. And it's just like, where do I come up for air? You know, like that's just, again, one one component, one aspect of it. So I fly into Dallas quite a few times to visit my brother's dispensary in Oklahoma, right at the Windstar Casino. So 40 minutes from there. And his Texas partner's always talking about, you know, it's coming, but then he's crying, you know, and he goes, Mike, you just can't take it. These rules are, you don't even, can't even figure it out. And I was so, yeah, no, look, I get it. You know, and it, just Texas just doesn't make sense. I mean, there's so many other problems. Why, why stymie this one? Well, especially when to your point earlier, it's like you see your neighboring states making advancements. And we've certainly had our fair share of, you know, very politically charged, you know, articles like, come on, Texas, what the fuck? You're late to the party. You're supposed to legalize, you know, is it going to be you or Louisiana? Like who's last to do it? Like Oklahoma just did it. Come on. And Texas is just digging their heels in. And I just don't see any movement, but it's also a testament to politics. And when you start to understand, obviously, politics a little bit better and specifically state politics, it just goes to show there are a lot of other problems and issues that are more important to the state at this time. But it is just so wild when you have the advancement of certain cannabinoids and the market is opening up and yet you can't have access to certain opportunities from a licensed or regulated perspective. So yeah, it's always just interesting. We'll be ready when you guys do. We're doing Mississippi now. So oh, nice. there needs to be more infrastructure. So, you know, yes, you know, like my specialty, let's say is building these and getting them up and going, you know, so it's, you know, to me, okay, if Texas isn't today, we'll get them tomorrow. You know, right now we're doing, doing our Mississippi papers. We're preparing for our New York dispensary papers. So you know, we're busy. We'll wait for you guys. It's going to come eventually. It just, I think for local operators, it's like, how long do you wait? And what actual influence can you have? And so I'm realizing it's not coming tomorrow and it's not coming next year. You know what I mean? So somebody's influencing the negative side. Somebody's got their thumb on it. That's the one you got to get out of the way. Yes, unfortunately. So that's a whole separate podcast, a whole other discussion. But I would love to end on just kind of, you know, getting your take, getting your pulse on what's next for you. It sounds like you just touched on a little bit of things coming back into the States market, doing things in Mississippi, dispensary in New York. So I'll just kind of leave it open-ended for you. What's next? Is it more stuff kind of looking at 
a blend between, you know, United States and Europe really looking at that global market? Is it really trying to help influence Portugal in particular to actually full on on legalize what is next kind of in your your world? Yeah, I mean, look, I got my hands full with this global market. It's all consuming. As you see, it just turned dark over here <laughs> when she started talking. I went from great light when we started the conversation to darkness, but this is like every night dealing with it. And the stuff we're doing in the United States is my family, my brother is very active in this now. He's taken over the role. We both have worked together since we were very young and he was always the one who built and I was the only the one who developed and kind of, you know, did the banking side and more of the operational side, whereas he would be brick and mortar, build it up guy. And we're definitely want to stay in this, you know, continue to develop states and bring the cannabis to the people that need it in those states, you know, so like places like Mississippi and, and New York, which is where my adult life started, you know, even though most of, most of my life I've been living out here or on the West Coast in my recent, you know, adult life. So just trying to take care of those states is about as much as we can handle. We're, we're still quite small, you know, relative to these giants that have enveloped the industry, but we keep ourselves a nice craft appeal. You know, we keep our grows manageable, large enough to be significant, but small enough to be manageable and profitable. And we just try to put a few different dispensaries in key places and operate them, you know, as best as we can to get as many products that can help people. And so we keep on that pitch and we'll keep on that pitch. But I don't think I'm leaving Portugal for a while. I'll be in Portugal, Greece. You can catch me in any country. Everybody thinks it's a wonderful life. And I keep explaining to people, I'm working. I can understand that for sure to some extent, although I've not been to Portugal yet. So I would love to make a visit sometime, maybe catch you over there, get some coffee and enjoy some cannabis. But very, very informative discussion. I personally, sometimes I'm like, sorry, listeners, like, I don't care what value you get because I got so much value. So I think that's all that really matters sometimes selfishly as the host. But I know people listening got so much value from that. Again, it's just so unknown what's going on over there. So it's really great and grateful to be able to connect with you and learn about your business and just about what's going on in Europe. And you're just so knowledgeable. And I just thank you for your time for staying up maybe late. I don't even know what time it is in Portugal, but the sun was setting like you were saying. So thanks for hanging out a little bit later with us on the podcast. I really appreciate it. No, I really enjoyed it. And please let us take you out. If you come over here, we'll give you a tour of the facility and we'll be happy to host you over here. It was a real pleasure being with you. And I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Love this episode of To Be Blunt? Be sure to visit theshadatarabi.com slash to be blunt for more ways to connect. New episodes come out on Mondays. And for more behind the scenes, follow along on Instagram at theshadatarabi.com.